0: Alrighty. Acts 5.12 is where we are. As we continue through the book of Acts, we have been studying uh, and uh, seeing that the book of Acts is a story with many layers. And one of the layers is, and uh, <laughs> one of the main things that you and i and we should know about as we move through the book of acts is that luke a doctor and a historian who also wrote acts under the inspiration of the holy spirit was charged to tell us about the early church and how the early church did what the early church did and that is spread the gospel all around the ancient world or the world at the time of the bible and that's what they did they spread the gospel all around and uh, they were just simply taking now listen to this this is really profound and hard to understand they just simply were taking the promises of God or excuse me the commandments of Christ and doing them that's what they were doing I mean come on folks you're standing here, and, or you've heard stories of people who were there, your fellow brothers or sisters, you're in the early church, and you remember just a few months ago, Jesus died on a cross. He didn't stay in the cross, he rose again, he came back to life, he rose again, he was resurrected. And he stayed and showed himself to many witnesses for about 40 days. And at the end of that time, he ascended into heaven. And he's right before he's ascending, he says, It's written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. I'm reading from Luke, right at the last chapter, at the end of the chapter. It was necessary for the Christ to suffer. This is Jesus himself saying this. And to rise from the dead the third day. Watch, listen. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name. In his character, in his power. To all nations. Oh, all nations. Okay, great beginning where? At Jerusalem. And we are in the book of Acts in the part where they are now preaching in Jerusalem. Later, we'll get to some other spots because he says in other gospels, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the ends of the earth. Behold, I send the promise of my father upon you, he keeps talking about, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. That's in the book of Luke. And in Acts, we just see them doing these things. They didn't argue, rationalize, give excuses, Well, you know, I have my squash game on Saturdays, so I'm not really going to be able to participate in your agenda, Lord. But the rest of the week, except for my job and my TV watching and my hobbies, I'll be available. That's not what these folks did. They just took the promise, recognized that Jesus really was and is alive and lived it, 24 seven, not squash game, hobbies, no, anything wrong with hobbies? No, but you get what I'm saying. This was their life. Jesus was their life, the person, not the agenda. They owed it all to Jesus and they knew it and nothing's really ever changed. It hasn't changed. In him, we live, we move, we have our being. He's our all in all, the scriptures tell us. But we have squash games. But in Acts, we continue to see some supernatural Holy Spirit living. And it's the same person, Holy Spirit, that resides in us today and will and can empower us for ministry. No different. We shouldn't be reading this going, oh, well, you know, that was the early church and there were different times and God bless them. Now we can come in here and sit and be comfortable. They knew nothing of comfort, nor did they care about comfort. They didn't care about it. You're going to see it today. What a radical agenda. And so we see, as we've been moving through Acts, as Luke has been telling us what happened in the early church, that the promise of the Holy Spirit came upon them in Acts chapter 2. And it was the day of Pentecost. And many came to trust in Jesus. And Peter gives a sermon. Now, just that is such a blessing. I mean, a couple months before... Peter was a wreck. He had denied the Lord the night before he was killed, crucified. Can you imagine slamming your fists on the table and say, Lord, I don't care what happens. You can count on me. I'll never leave you. I'll never deny you. And within hours, I mean, you know, the pit in the stomach feeling of how disappointed you would have been in yourself It would have been awful. And yet, here we go, just some months later, Peter begins and begins to preach. We see it right there in chapter 2, and many come to know and trust Jesus. And we get to chapter 3, and Peter and John are just living their Christian life. They're going up on the third hour to the Temple Mount to pray, just to pray, And they come to the beautiful gate and they see a lame man. And the guy asks for some money. It's no different than what you would be doing going downtown or seeing a homeless man. And here they are just living their life and... They say, we don't have any money for you, but what we do have is way more valuable. It's a, forgi- a message of forgiveness of sins and the life of Jesus. Here, grab my hand and get up and walk, and he does. And it's a miracle, and they actually lock arms. Peter, John, and the lame man. Somebody ought to paint this. Peter, John, and the lame man, and they skip into the temple areas, the porticos. And the people who meet there, the Christians, are like, isn't that the famous Dude who I always see at the gate, and he's like, yes, he can walk. But the point wasn't the miracle of walking, although that was great. The point was that his sins were forgiven, he was a follower of Jesus, and that Jesus, through the men, Peter and John, were doing Messiah things. How do I know that? Simply because I can read. And in Isaiah 35, it tells us, a hundred years or, or, excuse me, a thousand years or so, 800 years or so before the crucifixion, it says that one of the things that happens when the Messiah is doing his work is that lame people walk. Here, the early church, through the person and work of the Holy Spirit, we're showing the world that the Messiah, Jesus, is still alive and doing powerful things. And if you think for one minute he doesn't still do it today, you're sorely mistaken. But one of the reasons I think, or maybe two of the reasons I think we don't see it as much now is because one, we're scared of the Holy Spirit in some circles, or we abuse the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And number two, the first half of, the ch- of chapter 5 of the book of Acts tells us that God will purify his church. And that it's not a matter of sinning or being a hypocrite or being prideful. It's a matter of whether you'll repent or not. And Ananias and Sapphira lied to the people of the early church about a property that they sold. They sold it for this much, but told everybody they were... Excuse me, they sold it for this much, but told everybody they only sold it for this much because they wanted to look good in front of the early church. And God hated that sort of hypocrisy. He wanted reality and transparency and confection and repentance and no hiding and... The husband and Ananias here is struck down and Peter gives Sapphira, the wife, a chance to repent. And she goes along with the plan and they drop dead and are buried right then. And you and I and we start to say, well, why would God do that? And I think the point of the story is not why would God do that? The point of the story is why doesn't he do it more to us? See, they had now a real sense of the power and seriousness of sin and church life. It's not just to come here and to post Instagram photos and get likes and have fun and be this. It's a battle for people's lives, their souls. And God purifies his church so that it will be a vessel of godliness to the world. It's not that you have to be perfect get it it's that you have to be willing to repent and admit and not hide and be a hypocrite there it is and when that happens watch what power comes to the church look in verse 12 and through the hands of the apostles many signs and wonders were done among the people probably the healings that we've learned about in the gospels i'm sure doesn't really tell us exactly what signs and wonders. Probably healings, probably that sort of power. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. But I don't want you to miss that. I think that's part of the signs and wonders. That there was this simplicity in the church gathering or the body of Christ. Because folks, I don't know if you've been in the Church life for very long, but to have people with one accord in the same place, something that should be maintained and normal seems like a miracle now. And here, there were signs and wonders. There were people getting healed. There are people been here who've been healed. It still happens today. But they were all with one accord. that's a miracle, too. That means there were humble hearts. There were forgiving hearts. There were long-suffering hearts. There were hearts that weren't hiding things. They confessed their sins one to another. People didn't gossip about it. They just prayed with them and walked them through it. Yet none of the rest, verse 13, dared join them. So funny. Uh, But the people esteemed them highly. Wow, they look good, but people were dying over that church. That's what they were saying. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. I think that's a reference to the fact that the purity in the church separates serious believers from people who just want to be religious and hang on. Just be around the people of God. I think what's happening here is if you want to do the serious work of being a Christian, you'll be a person under the Holy Spirit who's long-suffering with people, who recognizes that God's sin is serious, or sin to God is serious, and a holy matter. And it's not something to just pat him on the head and say, oh, it's fine, honey. No, this is a serious matter. So serious, his son died for them. The sins of the world. And they had this sense. But to some, see, that was sort of a turnoff. We don't want to be a part of that. They're fanatical over there. They really actually believe that there should be purity in the church. And the thing is, is if you're hiding something, and if I'm hiding something, if we're hiding things, the Lord will find them out. And we went through the sin of Achan in Joshua and how he had buried something in his tent or hid it in his tent, just a little dress and some money. And he didn't do what the Lord asked, and that was a serious sin. And we see how it detracts from the mission of the church, especially in that story in Joshua 7 of the sin of Achan, because they had to take the time to sort it all out instead of going into the promised land. And that's what sin does in the church. And so we need to just be people of repentance. I love In the book of Matthew, the Bible just tells us, agree with your adversary quickly. You know the enemy of your souls is going to come and say things like this. Man, you're a loser spiritually. And you know what's funny about it? The same Sermon on the Mount says that we're uh, blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, we recognize we're spiritually bankrupt. And when the adversary comes and takes that little hook that bothers you, oh, you're a loser spiritually, the, the answer becomes, well, you don't know the half of it. If you really knew what I was like. Amen. We just agree with them. We open, we're open and transparent about our sins. And then the Lord fills us up and can do great things. But here you see that believers were incre- increasingly added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women, the purity and the power in the church brought many into it. That the Lord added, not the marketing, not the advertising, not the false ways in which people get people to go to church. It was the Lord. What a beautiful thing. So that they brought the sick out into the streets, and they laid them on beds and couches, that, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. You say, oh, wow, what is all this about? Well, it's not that difficult to understand. You know some other stories that are sort of like this or other events in the Bible. Remember when there was the lady with the blood flow and she couldn't get it to stop and she was just watching Jesus walk down the street? Remember what it says she did? She reached out and grabbed the hem of his garment or his robe. You remember that. And she was healed. Jesus heals. You know some other things. We do it in here every so often when somebody asks, in James it says, if somebody gets sick, call for the elders, have them put oil on them, lay hands on them, and pray for them. Do you, you're right? You know that scripture, James chapter five. So this sort of falls into that category. They just wanted the shadow of Peter to, uh, to pass or to pass by and fall on them. What does this mean? Did the shadow have power? Of course not. Of course not. Later, by the way, I think there's handkerchiefs, Paul and handkerchiefs, and you know that story. Is, 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 does the handkerchief have power? Did the hem of the garment have power? Does the oil have power? Of course not. Who has power? It's God himself. Power, Psalm 62 says, belongs to God. He owns it. He, he is power. What happens is this is sort of like a point of contact, that your faith can be released out to the Lord and the Lord reacts back to it. We do it in here all the time. We lay hands upon somebody. We oil somebody. That's all. It's not something weird where we believe in the oil or we believe in the sweaty cloth or we believe in the shadow. We believe in Jesus and that he has the power to heal. And that's what was happening here. A multitude gathered. There was this point of contact. And a multitude now gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, watch the intensity of of the uh, mission increasing. You're starting to see it just little by little. They're called to go out from Jerusalem. None of that has happened yet. The persecution will drive them out here in a couple chapters. But now look, people around Jerusalem are coming to hear and to see why are people being healed? What's the message that these people are espousing. What are they talking about? Resurrection and the Messiah. So they brought their sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they all were healed. Now, look over in chapter 4, verse 29. Now, Lord, look on their threats. They've been threatened by the ruling council of Israel, the servants, Peter and John, the apostles. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. Remember, they had gone to jail or had been housed for the night. And they scolded them, Peter and John, and said, don't do this anymore. Don't don't talk about this resurrection. Don't do this. We don't want this in our city now shut up and get out of here. That's what they said. And the, uh, the disciples, the apostles, ran to the body of Christ and said, hey, let's pray for more boldness. And they did, watch. That your servants, that with all boldness, they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. You know, here's what, I, I tell you this all the time. Here's what we would have said that first time. Oh, Lord, it was so moldy and smelly in there and it was dark and dank and don't put me back in there anymore in fact I'm kind of questioning whether I'm one of yours because how could you put me in the jail that's what we would pray they said send us again and give us more boldness and oh by the way Do these signs and wonders through your name. Why? So that you'll be glorified and many will come to know you in a real and saving way. And now when you fast forward into chapter 5, guess what? There's the answer to prayer. (laughs) It didn't take very long. Here you got power of the Holy Spirit, purity of the church. So they bring out sick beds, laid them on beds. Peter passed by and there was a shadow they were healed, and then people started hearing about this, and they go, Hey, go around Jerusalem and some of the cities and bring the sick people, and they were all healed. An answer to prayer. They're believing in prayer, they're expecting that the Lord would move. I think if we thought about some of the reasons why we don't see more of this now, we don't depend upon the Holy Spirit. In fact, If the pastor talks about him, I like to not come to church that week because, come on, I want to talk about Jesus some more. And the Holy Spirit to me, I mean, this is what we think. Just don't. It's too controversial. Why do you think it's controversial? Why do you think the enemy doesn't want you to know and love the person of the Holy Spirit? Because of this. And and there's purity in the church so that he can work. He doesn't want hiding He wants repentance so that he could move on and release this power and do these things with expectant hearts they pray and they see these healings. But is healing all, the end all, and the be all? No. How do you come to know the Lord? Faith comes by hearing or trust in the Lord. Faith comes by hearing, but hearing what? The word of God. The word of God, by the spirit of God, works bringing people to repentance and regeneration, new life. Well, then the high priest rose up. Uh Uh-oh, not the high priest again. These are the members of the ruling council, and the high priest, listen, is the number one most important religious person in all of Israel, all of Judaism. Here he is, the high priest gets up, and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees. Now, let me remind you, in the ruling council of Israel, about 70 people plus one. So 71. 71. The high priest is the 71st. These ruling council who decided the religious mostly and some civil cases, although the Romans were now over top of them, oppressing them. This ruling council was made up primarily, although there were some others, of a couple groups. Pharisees, which Jesus talked about a lot. They were legalists. They were, not all of them. There were some good ones, but they were whitewashed tombs in many ways. They adhered to religious stuff and they looked so good on the outside, but Jesus said inside they were dead and rotting. But then you had the Sadducees and the Sadducees were sort of the liberal elite of the times. And they didn't believe in supernatural. They didn't believe in things like the Holy Spirit, or angels. They didn't believe in angels, and they certainly didn't believe in the resurrection. They believed if you followed the moral dictates of what God set forth in the Old Testament, and you know, don't take them too seriously, but you follow them generally, oh, that'll be good enough at the end. That's who the Sadducees were. And they were part of this ruling council, and in Acts, you see them coming against the apostles. Jesus comes against the Pharisees a lot, but some Sadducees. The apostles in Acts, more the Sadducees. And they were filled with indignation. And now you don't read Greek, and neither do I. But indignation's not a strong enough word. This actually means violent, not violent. (laughs) Did I say violent? I might have said violent. Violent, with an N. Violent. Jealousy. That's what this means. They were jealous and they're going to be violent about it. If you don't calm down and cease your message here, apostles, there's going to be some violence happening. That's what this word means. They were really, really angry. Why would they be angry? Well, this was going to upset their apple cart, their religious apple cart. I mean, they had this system down and they wanted the system to prevail. And there were a lot of things that went into this. And what I want you to see is that religion can often lead to these sorts of attitudes. Religion, an outward appearance of some sort of moral Christianity, robotic, where you trust more in the traditions than you do the reality of the living Christ. And here, what what happens is one of the things you see with religion is violent indignation. People start hating other people, and that is so true. And they laid their hands on the apostles, and that isn't strong enough. It wasn't like they, hey, Peter, hey, John, could you walk over to the prison with me? No, or come over into the council. That's not, they grabbed them and they seized them. And put them in the common prism. Now I want you to to ask yourself something. Was God unhappy with the apostles right now? Yes or no? Oh, he says yeah. I would say I don't think they were exactly unhappy with the apostles. How about this? Had the apostles in this story here failed in any way? No, they hadn't failed. You get what I'm getting at? So oftentimes you look at yourself and say, Lord, you put me in prison. What's wrong? I've been 28 Bible studies in a row. I've given money. I go to the prayer times. I help old ladies across the street. Or old men. Yes. <laughs> and you owe me. That's how we say, think. You owe me, Lord. And now you put me in prison. How dare you? And there was none of that in the early church. None. Zero. Nobody even thought like that. Under the inspiration and power and endowment with power of the Holy Spirit, they're in prison. These people are going to sing and praise. None of that. They're not thinking, oh, Lord, what's wrong? They say, Lord, this is what you have for me. Praise the Lord. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Wow. So there's an angel that opens the prison doors. And what are angels? They're created beings that are sent to minister to the saints, the people of God. They're ministering spirits. They're created. They're ministering spirits. They peer over heaven looking to see what salvation and life in Christ is like. That's what the book of Peter tells us. They long to see it, but they help. And oftentimes, they can come in the appearance of a human. Don't be careful, Hebrews tells us, about disregarding uh, strangers. Might be an angel. That's what Hebrews tells us. So here they are. Here's an angel of the Lord. Opens the prison doors. Brings them out. I love it because it doesn't say that the early church or the people of the early church are surprised. <laughs> this just happens. This is life with Jesus. Power. And resource. And miracles. And people coming to know the Lord and his Word getting out. Look look over with me. I hope it's here. This is coming off the top of my head, so I hope it's here. Or I'm really in trouble. In Matthew 16. Oh. Whew. We're going to go to uh, Israel, Lord willing, and... 2024 in March. And I have to say, this is my favorite place we go. We actually go to this place and this story. This is my most favorite place, and it's the most powerful, I think. But Jesus takes his disciples somewhere. Look in verse 13 of Matthew 16. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, that's north and east of the Sea of Galilee, up near this mountain called Mount Hermon. It looks like, I mean, it's this is a huge mountain, like huge. And he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And so they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? See, that's important. If you're sitting here and you you don't know, whether you're going to heaven or not. You don't know you have eternal life. If you don't know any of those things, God's not saying to like the person you're sitting with, hey uh or you know, you're a Christian and he's not or she's not. Maybe my husband or my friend that I came with, it'll sort of rub off on me. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying each one of us, you must deal with the gospel. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, Peter, the guy who's given this sermon, answers and said, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. By the way, it's not Peter, the rock. It's Jesus the chief cornerstone, who's the rock on which we build the church. But anyway, he says, on this rock, I'll build my church. And the look, and the gates of Hades won't prevail against it. And I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. In other words, he's saying the gospel's open for the Jews. And anybody who isn't a Jew which is all of us, or most of us. So you get back over here and you go, "Ah!" and you bite your fingernails, and you're nervous, and you're sitting in jail, and you're like, oh, God's plans are not going to get through because we're so important, Peter and John, might have been tempted to say, and no way, is the gospel going to get out? Jesus promised that nothing, not even the gates of hell, could prevail against his church. When we're operating in the person in work of the Holy Spirit with purity and with prayerful expectation, the church is never going to be stopped. God's going to get his purposes done. Why in the world are we complaining about where we are or anything in life. Well, they didn't. They didn't know any of that. So the <laughs> angel says, hey, go, go tell them. And I, I want you to go into the temple. Now see, there again, you might be tempted to skip over that. <laughs> Lord, send me to Hawaii. Hawaii. You know that one little beach over on the side of the big island where nobody is? Send me over there. I'll be your minister over there. Or send me into a home business, a remote business, where I never have to go interact with any people. I'll be a Christian, but, you know, people. Eh. Here, the message from God was, I want you to go to the most populated, important, busiest place in all of Israel, the temple. And I want you to stand there and I want you to tell people all the words of this life. By the way, Jesus was called the author of life back in chapter 3, verse 15. There's a big debate about what all does this encompass? And I think that's a good thing. What does all this encompass? The words of life. Well, you could just go through the book of John and it's going to tell you that Jesus gives, has, if you put trust in him, you will have eternal life. You understand that, right? You could just anywhere in the book of John, just read the book of John for about five minutes. You're going to encounter that. But also in chapter four and chapter seven, God tells us through Christ, that there's going to be a quality to your life, your eternal life, that starts the minute you trust in him. And that's called abundant life. You're never gonna be bored in the Christian life. You're never going to be unsatisfied when you follow Christ. You're going to have, in John chapter seven, rivers of living water pouring out of your life because of the life of Christ which is found, of G- uh, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ, one of his names. So you got all this. So speak all those things to the people up in the temple. Lord, couldn't you have give, given me Hawaii? The outback of Montana? Upper Canada? No, he said, I want you to go where all the people are. If you want to be a fisher of men, you got to go... <laughs> where the fish are. So they send them to the temple area, and when they heard that they entered the temple early in the morning and taught, this is so funny. Here's another place where the American church, what would we say? Now, Lord, did you really say that? Um, I'm going to take about six months here, Lord, and pray about this. Because I think what you really meant was Hawaii or Upper Canada not the temple. And Lord, just for extra measure, never put me in the prison again, okay? No, here's what they did. They get out of the prison, they have this encounter, they get out and they get, look, look, they get up extra early in the morning. And they're there. There was no questioning, like, you know, who's in charge here, you or me, Lord? That's America. They just said, oh, you asked us to go to the temple? We'll get there about 5.30. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. I think some of Mm -hmm. us need to just do it. What is it that the last thing that the Lord asked you to do and you blew off? And then I get people that come and say, why isn't my life fruitful? Why am I not? Well, what is the last thing the Lord asked you to do and you didn't do? Go back there and do it. Here, they just did it, and I want you to see that they entered the temple early in the morning and they taught. What were they teaching? They were teaching the scriptures. They were teaching Jesus. They didn't have the New Testament yet, but they were teaching from the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus was the way, the truth, the life, that he died, rose again for our sins, paid our penalty, broke the power of sin, and now the Holy Spirit will come and live in your life. Sounds familiar. It's the same message, but the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel, and they sent to the prison to have them brought. This is like Abbott and Costello right here. Who's on first? Oh, I'm dating myself. And, but when the officers came, verse 22, and didn't find them in the prison, they returned and reported saying, indeed, we found the prison shut shut securely, and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one. This is one of three types of these escapes in Acts. You'll see this a couple more times. We found no one inside. Now, when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. You're tempted to move by that. But what they were saying was, oh no, we got something on our hands here. This is real. What will be the outcome of this? So verse 25, one came and told them saying, look, the men whom you put in a prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. They got there before the chief priest got there. And they're out and they're doing it. And the captain, the the, the police sort of went with the officers and brought them without violence. Oh, boy. Boy, do I want to talk about this in this environment of the world. They didn't protest. They didn't call the establishment bad names. They didn't post anything on Facebook. They didn't yell and scream on CNN or Fox News or MSNBC or whatever we watch, they didn't post anything. They just went without violence. They said, okay, this is what the Lord has for us. Boom. They didn't complain. It's amazing. This is what the Lord has for us. Remember, the Lord had told them before he left, you're going to be taken before councils and rulers. I guarantee it. That's what Jesus was saying. He warned them. But don't worry about what you're going to say, because at the time you need the right words, the Holy Spirit's going to give them to you. And the reason I'm sending you, or at least one of the reasons, go back and read, is because I want you to be a witness to the very people who are hailing you into jail. (laughs) Lord, keep me safe. Keep me out of prison. Don't let me have any uncomfortableness in my life. I want to be comfortable all times, 24-7. And we wonder why our prayers aren't answered. So they do this, and no violence for why the temple people feared the people, and that was their problem. That's what religion does. It fears people and not man, or not God. It fears, fears man, not God. And when they brought them, they set them before the council. Here they are again. I wonder if they were smiling right then. Not in some smart alecky way like I'd be smiling. But I just wonder if they were like, Lord, you told us this was going to happen. It's like my faith is being increased every time they arrest me. (laughs) So they do that, and there they are. They brought them in. They set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, hey, didn't we tell you not to teach in his name? Which they did. You could go over to, Chapter 4, and uh, be all in there. uh, And I mean, the whole first part of the chapter is about don't do this again, and they threaten them in the whole shoot and match. Didn't we strictly tell you not to teach in His name and watch and look? You have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. Folks, it had not been very long, and all of Jerusalem they recognized was filled with the doctrine what all the words of life that jesus has eternal life jesus is our peace he's our all these things that were sinners the human predicament god's provision it had flooded and the resurrection and new life flooded the city guys gals what if we just did it right here just flood this little city 600 people the census say live here that's enough or we can do it. And then where do you live? Do you live in Bethel Park? Do you live in Elizabeth? What if your little borough, not a city, what if it was flooded with the doctrine of the gospel? You see, we go and go, wow, that's that me That thats just normal day's work for these guys and gals. This is what they did. They went into the barber shops and the stables and the, shipyards, and the restaurants, and the extracurricular activities, and the schools, and, the, and they just shared Jesus and the gospel. They did it daily. They didn't do it just sometimes like an evangelistic party. Okay, that's good. Great. Do an evangelism day. But the Bible calls us to evangelize every day through your life. So they filled all of Jerusalem with the doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us, They couldn't even come to say Jesus' name. Did you notice that? This is the same council in which Jesus was tried and then sent to be crucified in, in conjunction with the Roman authorities. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Right. The civil authorities, sort of, were telling them not to say this. And this is sort of where you get civil disobedience. You can't go against the direct command of God. The Bible calls us to be great citizens. You can just read Romans 13 and other places. You're called, I'm called, to be a great citizen. That's whether your party's in power or another party's in power. You're called to be a great citizen, informed, working the system in in the right way, voting, doing all of that with respect and honor. And to submit yourself to the authorities, watch, unless there's a direct command from God that won't allow you to do it. That's what the Bible teaches. And here it came to that. If somebody said to us, you're not allowed to evangelize in West Elizabeth, Southwestern PA, Elizabeth, or up and down the 51 corridor, we'd have to say, Well, respectfully, we can't do that because God has asked us to do that. You say, well, nobody would ever do that. Well, hold on. So Peter answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. By the way, civil disobedience can happen (laughs) at your job. You're to be the best employer, follow the lead of the uh, boss, do what the boss says. But if the boss asks you to do something that's not legal or against God, well, you can't do it. Oh, by the way, if you're in a marriage, and you're submitting one to another, and let's just say the husband asks the wife to do something against God, well, you'd have to obey the Lord. You see it in all aspects. you see that? Well, anyway, as we go on, <clears throat> we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Now, why does he say hanging on a tree? Why? Because in Deuteronomy, the Israelites recognized that anybody that hanged upon a tree was accursed or a, a curse. And so... Galatians tells us that he took the curse for us. Peter tells us that he bore the sins, our sins, on a tree. All that is to evoke these things in a Jewish mind that this was really humiliating. But he hung on a tree, and him, God, has exalted to his right hand to be the prince and savior. Fascinating word, prince. It means like leader out front, trailblazer. The one who goes before you, that's Jesus. Blazing a trail into heaven. And here you come behind. Isn't that great? To give, watch, God is exalted to be Prince and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Only Jesus can give it repentance and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were furious. Religion. They get mad when you change stuff on them. They plotted to kill him. They got so mad that they wanted to kill the apostles now. In the same place, in the same area in which Jesus was tried, the apostles are going through the same thing. Jesus addressed this, right? He said, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. You're seeing that a lot today. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel. Gamaliel was a respected teacher or rabbi of the law, held in lots or held in respect. You read it there. But I want you to know something. He apparently, as we'll read later on in Acts, was the mentor to Paul and taught him as a little boy or a young man. And some of the extra biblical writings, just put this away, it's interesting of Gamaliel, sort of his journal, he wrote, and I'm paraphrasing now, that it was hard to keep enough books in front of Paul. He devoured them. He was a great student. And you can see that in Paul's writings. Just check out Romans. But anyway, that's this guy, Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in respect, commanded them, the council, to put the apostles outside. Hey, let's talk, he says. And he said to them, men of Israel, take heed to yourselves. What do you intend to do regarding these men? For some time ago, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400 joined him. He was slain and all who obeyed him were scattered and came uh, to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished and all obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. Apparently there were these two guys who rose up and got a following and they were sort of anti, or excuse me, uh, false messiahs. And one of the, by the way. There's a lot to be said about false teachers in the Bible. And one of the things you can glean from here about false teachers, they're always interested in people following them. But apparently, Gamaliel knew this, and the council agrees with him in verse 40. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, now that word means skinned, this wasn't just a punch in the face. This was a beating, and I'm not sure whether it was a cat of nine tails or not, 39 lashes or not, but that word suggests it was more than just one punch to the face or something. They got after these guys. They beat them. And they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus. Same thing, and they let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. (laughs) Counted worthy. I mean, come on, folks. Praise the Lord for the beatings somehow some way i'm coming into a deeper knowledge of what it is that you suffered lord and somehow some way the bible tells us that we enter into a fellowship that was not previously known before the suffering with our lord and savior we come Closer to him in some way. There's this aspect that we have in common. So they get out, and they don't just say, hey, counting it worthy to suffer shame. They actually were joyful about it. Rejoice. And there's several scriptures here I could take you to about how that's important. They were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name and daily in the temple and in every house. They did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus at the Christ. I want you to know something. If you're in the evangelism class, again, look, they didn't just evangelize on the weekends or when they had time, it was every day. And they went up to the temple to do it and they went from house to house to do it. And they didn't cease, watch. They both preached, proclaimed the good news, but they also taught, both are important. Preaching, proclaiming the good news, teaching, growing in Christ, and preaching Jesus at the Christ. Now, I sent something to our crack staff, but I just sent it right before the service. And if they got it, great. If not, I'm just gonna read it to you. I'm gonna read it to you. It's my fault, not theirs. Maybe I am. And it talks about Charles Spurgeon here uh, ending up this chapter. Charles Spurgeon gives a, a great quote, and he says this: "Now I charge every Christian here to be speaking boldly in Christ's name, according as he has opportunity, and especially to take care of this tendency of our flesh to be afraid, which p- leads practically practically to endeavors to get off easily, and to save ourselves from trouble. Fear not. Be brave for Christ. Live bravely for him who died lovingly for you. Now, I don't often disagree with Spurgeon, but here I do. What Spurgeon just gave you, in my opinion, was a pep talk. And pep talks don't work. Now, Spurgeon's one of the greatest preachers of all time. Don't go out saying. (laughs) But I think the key to everything we're learning and growing in. Oh, look at this. They're so good. I think the key to everything that we're learning about and growing in is found over in verse 32. Go back there. And we are his witnesses, Peter said, to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. I think the thing that can help us today as we look at this. I mean, I read this and go, I am a worm. Daily, beatings, prison, joy, gladness, later we'll see in their prison singing. I don't know about that. Anybody else with me? And I don't need a pep talk. Here's why. Pep talks only work for so long. I need life and resource and ability. And I believe it's the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Now look, I'm going to switch gears. There's a guy named D.L. Moody. Anybody here heard of D.L. Moody? D.L. Moody, amazing pastor. He was an evangelist. He was born in Massachusetts, had an amazing ministry in Massachusetts, but also went over to Chicago You ever heard of the Moody Bible Institute, Moody all that? That's from this guy. And he had a power and a presence that few men, according to all historical accounts, ever had in their preaching. By the way, the person who wrote this book, The Person and Work of the Holy Spirit by R.A. Torrey, was a mentee, an understudy of D.L. Moody. And D.L. Moody recounts in here that he was, for about 10 years of his ministry, just hold on, we're almost done. For about 10 years of his ministry, he's preaching his heart out. And these old ladies, I think two or three of them, I can't remember it was two or three, would come up and would follow him around Chicago or wherever he was. He might have been in, anyway. They would follow him around, first 10, uh, first 10 years, and they would say, and they would say, oh, Mr. Moody, we're praying for you. And Mr. Moody would say, hey, thanks, but pray for the people. The next night, oh, Mr. Moody, we're praying for you. And finally he got sick of it. He said, why are you praying for me and not the people who need to get saved? And you know what Mr. Moody said? D.L. Moody, or excuse me, the lady said, the lady go, we're praying that you get baptized in the Holy Spirit. And he said, what do you mean, baptizing the Holy Spirit? And he he said, well, you have all the intellect, the charm, the way in which you relate to the people, but you have no power. Or there's no power present. Now that takes some guts to say that to D.L. Moody. So D.L. Moody received the coming upon ministry of the Holy Spirit that we've talked about at length here. And from that point on, his ministry just took off. I want to read something to you, and we'll close. Because, see, I think D.L. Moody is a picture of the early church just in the 1800s. R.A. Torrey wrote, Why in the world did God use my mentor? He wrote an essay about why did God use D.L. Moody so powerfully? One, he was fully surrendered to God. Two, he was a man of unbelievable prayer. When he prayed, you sensed genuineness and fellowship. And he just was a man of prayer. He just prayed for, for and about everything. He was a deep and practical student of the Bible. It never left his side. He got up at four every morning, not that you have to get up for, at four, but he was always in his Bible. What was another reason? He was a humble man, very humble. R.A. Torrey says this about him. Faith gets the most, love works the most, but humility keeps the most. And he said that was a description of D.L. Moody. Why else did the Lord use him? His, he had an entire freedom from the love of money, or possessions. He had no love of money for possessions. And he had, next reason God used him, a consuming passion for the salvation of the lost. I wanted to just tell you real quickly, he made a pact with himself when he got saved that he wouldn't go one day without witnessing to somebody. And some days he would find himself on his bed at night, and the Lord would bring it back to him. It's 11 o'clock, and you haven't done this and he would get back up and go dress and find somebody and share with them. He did it for almost 50 years, 45 years. He shared personally in his life, not just at the evangelistic meetings. So he had a consuming passion for the salvation of the lost. And then the final thing is, he was definitely endued with power from on high. He received the power of the Holy Spirit, not just the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And the Lord used him in a mighty way. So here's what I'd say as we finish. Why did this happen in the early church and why isn't it happening now? Well, it is happening now. You just might not see it, but there are conditions. There's this environment I read some of them to you about the life of D.L. Moody. But if, I, if you wrote those down, who wrote them down? Uh, Cindy. All right, good. If you wrote those down, all you'd have to do is you'd have to go all through the first five chapter of Acts and you would find all of those things present. So let's pray. And if there's anybody in here who doesn't know whether they're, going to heaven, that they have eternal life. If they've never trusted Jesus, I'm praying that you would trust Jesus now. Come up and talk to me or us after. If there's anybody here who's never received the power of the Holy Spirit, well, lean into that. Confess your sin. Be a person of humility. The Holy Spirit is going to give you a consuming passion. Listen, here's the point. You don't have to give yourself a pep talk. There's no pep talk needed. What we need is the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much. And I pray if there's anybody here and the Lord's tugging on their heart that they would trust Christ for their salvation. I pray, Lord, that there's anyone here that feels like they are they have a uh, come into the family of God but there's no power, there's no resource, there's no ability. I pray that we would come together that this person or these people would pray that you would overpower them or come upon them, Lord, for ministry so that there would be power evidenced in their lives and our lives corporately. And, Lord, there would be a big change in this part of southwestern PA that people would see it, repenting, renouncing sin, and pursuing holiness appropriately and rightly as you direct Lord, we love you, but we know it's because you first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.